God is good. God is good to those who follow Him. See, this simple confession seems like maybe the most obvious, simple Sunday school truth we could confess. We Christians differ on lots of different nuances of theology, but the truth of God's goodness uniquely to His people is universally confessed by all Christian denominations. We Christians, we fight over all sorts of doctrines, how we baptize, who we baptize, God's providence and human responsibility, the timing of the return of Christ, church government, how it should be run. The list goes on and on and on. But it doesn't matter if you're Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Pentecostal, Methodist, all Christians confess God's goodness. And this seemingly Sunday school truth is important for us to know how God deals with His people, right? But it's exactly this non-controversial confession that brings out a huge problem for Asaph. Asaph starts out by saying God is good to Israel, but the goodness of God brings things into question. And this problem has to do with God's goodness and a world filled with evil. Because as soon as we confess God is good, we're immediately confronted by our own experience. We're immediately reminded of all the history we've read about, of the unspeakable even evils and atrocities we know about. We have to, this is often cast as the problem of evil, and usually it's cast in this way. If God is good, He cannot be sovereign and in control given the amount of evil in this world. Or, if God is sovereign, He can't be good. They're mutually exclusive. But we know the Bible affirms both God's goodness and God's sovereignty. So neither of these are options for the faithful Christian. So what, what Christians, Orthodox Christians have pointed out that escapes the seeming paradox is to point that an all-knowing God can have good and wise reasons for ordaining and permitting evil that are far beyond our comprehension. And we know this ultimately is answered in the cross where God wrote himself into the story, into, into one of the most heinous acts of evil as a way to, to solve it. For his own glory. But this problem of Asaph he's confronting is even more particular. What about the seeming disparity between the life of ease of the unbeliever and the believer? What about the difficult, trouble-filled lives of God's people? How can one say God is good to Israel when in Asaph's experience the pagan nations seem to thrive? They seem to be flourishing in extravagance and ease. So as we examine this text this morning, we're going to see how we need our perspective on life's disparities and unfairnesses to be reoriented in the light of eternity. That for us to truly understand God's goodness to His people, we must understand everything in light of our ultimate hope. And the interesting thing is, as we focus on our ultimate hope, that in turn breaks into our perspective in life here and now and shapes how we handle the temptations to bitterness. It shapes even our very definition of blessing. It changes even how we define what really is good. So first, as we dive in the text, we're going to see the warping of reality by envy. The warping of reality by envy. And we're going to see this in two different ways. So we're going to see this in how Asaph looks at outward at the world around him, and then also as he looks inward at his own life, so both outward and inward. First, the reality of the lives of the wicked are warped by envy as we look outward. He says in verses 3 through 7, For I envied the arrogant, 
I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness, and the imaginations of their heart run wild. As sin distorts our gaze, the the psalmist's assessment is that the wicked prosper. He sees their lives as easy, as effortless. Don't you notice just how extravagantly things are twisted here? There's an intentional hyperbole here. It's not just that the wicked are well-fed. They're so well-fed that their eyes are bulging out with fatness. Now, this seems like a curse to us. <laughs> this doesn't seem like a good thing. But in the ancient Near East, we remember, body fat was prized. Work was sweaty and hard. Food was scarce and expensive. But do you see how sin twists reality? The hyperbole here is often our own, isn't it? We often exaggerate the blessings of others in our envy. If I just had a new car like they had, man, things would be easier. I wouldn't have to shuffle the car seats around. If I just had that better house, one more bedroom would solve all my problems. That would be it, just, just like those people over there. If I had that better job, man, you know, with my boss and this, just that better job would solve all of life, would be painless and effortless, be trouble-free. We know it's not actually true. We know we're being a little bit hyperbolic. But if we're honest, this is the way we think at times. Sin warps the truth. We start believing a lie. See, this has all the hallmarks of Satan's temptations and twisting. Satan commonly makes the life of the wicked look easy and pleasant in relationship to the difficulty of following the narrow path that Christ has set before us. Satan does this with Jesus when he tempts him with food and wealth and power during his temptation in the desert, which Christ is faithful with. But when he does that to us, he often plays on our insecurities, on our pride, on our jealousy. Satan wants us first and foremost to care about food and pleasure. I remember this vividly in college. At times, the life of partying and hedonism, it seems so easy. It seems so fun, and it seemed harmless. The, the, the tricks of the tempter would start playing tricks on your mind. Now, the closer you actually got to the experience, the veneer of innocuous fun vanished. It was just a mirage. You saw all sorts of bad results of it, broken friendships and relationships. But even when you knew it was a false promise, there was still a voice inside at times that would say, pursue ease, pursue pleasure. I remember uh, one of my favorite parts of the movie Pirates of the Caribbean is the pirates go and steal this cursed gold and they're, they're describing how th- this curse has now taken all the pleasure away from, from all these things that, that, that they took pleasure in. He says, food turns to ash in his mouth. And it's such a good example of we know when we, when we pursue the fleeting pleasures of sin that when we actually get them, we know it's ash. We know it's not really, it doesn't really offer the, the, the pleasure and blessing that it, that it professes to, but we're tricked. We believe the lie. Maybe you've seen this as an adult in work and business. The people who seem to be thriving might be bending a few laws. Maybe they're doing a few unethical practices, strategically lying to get a little personal gain, but it all seems to work out for them. They seem to get the nice vacations. They get the good promotions. 
Our sin tells us it's harmless. Our sin twists reality to, to tell us even change the way we measure the life well lived. Slowly but surely, Satan tries to chip away at our perspective to lessen the seriousness of sin. Slowly but surely, it tries to redefine our definition of success. Redefine the, the definition of success from following Christ and a nearness to God to a worldly one of pleasure and greed. I mean, the psalmist even goes far to say, they have an easy time until they die without pain. It's almost like the curse has been lifted for these people. We know it's not actually true. They're still living in the same world we are, but our perspective on it is twisted. So as our gaze turns outward, Satan and our own sinful inclinations tend to lead us to bitterness, to a false appraisal of the unbelieving life. And this causes a very serious challenge to our understanding of the goodness of God. Our very definition of goodness is being warped. But secondly, the psalmist then looks inward and looks at his own life and he despairs. He says, did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? The life of faithfulness seems useless. It seems vain. It's vanity. Why am I fighting sin? Why is everything so hard for me? Why am I spending all my time on Sunday here when I could be out eating brunch or exercising? I'd have a whole extra day. Why am I doing these things? My unbelieving friends have it so much easier. But you might be thinking, okay, I've read my Bible. I know that Christians experience pain and difficulty. I don't subscribe to some unbiblical view of like health and wealth, prosperity gospel. But let me challenge you a bit on this. Don't we even in faithful Bible teaching churches have maybe a, a different version of this prosperity gospel? I saw this a bit in like high school youth groups. Oh, if you keep yourself pure, you're not going to experience all the heartache and problems that unchafed life brings. And there's a grain of truth to this, right? We know this from Proverbs. The way of folly leads to destruction. But there's no, but, but it's almost like if you, if you follow the right rules, marital bliss is the, is the sure result. But then you grow up and you see many faithful Christians maybe get in difficult marriages. And the questions come. They did it right. They followed all the rules. They followed God's way. And the result was pain and difficulty and hardship. Even if unspoken, the expectation is that a life of ease is to come if you just push the right knobs. We see this maybe with honesty in financial dealings. Often we see ourselves or other believers struggle financially, even though they're, they're honest in all their dealings. The bitterness comes, doesn't it? The, the questions come. God, did I do these things for nothing? My unbelieving friends seem to have it so easy. I did it the right way. Why am I experiencing this difficulty and hardship? When we look inward and compare our lives to the world, bitterness and weariness tend to grow. Isn't God good to his people? Despair and doubt are the byproduct. However, things change for the psalmist. True reality is revealed in the sanctuary of God. His whole perspective is changed as he changes his gaze from the world and self to other believers and to God. Read with me uh, verses 15 through 17. He says, If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would, I would have betrayed your people. Notice the first catalyst for change is this is the first time the psalmist is no longer looking inward and no longer comparing everything to the world. This is the first time he changes his conceited, bitter view to the concerns of others. 
with those of the people of God. His gaze turns from inward to to outward within the people of God. It's almost like he's saying, if I keep talking this way, I might cause some of your people to stumble. And this is a profound truth, isn't it? Haven't you noticed this? Being in community with other believers redirects us from worrying about our own concerns. Those of you who have been in our small groups uh, recently going through the spiritual disciplines, this, this seemed to be a common theme that came up over and over in our group. That once that, that people found that some of their greatest uh, changes and, and perspective in the Christian life came just by being in community with other people. That there's just a reorientation of perspective. It really falls in line with what Paul says when he tells us to do nothing from self-ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others as more significant than yourself. Look, he says, look, uh, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Haven't you found this to be true? When you're plagued by self-introspection and you get the opportunity just to serve, your whole perspective changes. Maybe often you see your problems are very small compared to others. Things are put in, in the right perspective that way. Maybe often just care, the exercise of caring for others allows you to see the goodness of God in both their lives and your own. Even in the midst of suffering and difficulty, God's grace and presence is near in a unique way. This reminds me of the the great hymn, By Thy Mercy. Maybe you've heard it, Indelible Grace has a version of it. And the song asks, God deliver us, God deliver us. But it has two distinct things to be delivered from. One is the times of dark distresses, those hours of temptation and trial. But it also asks for deliverance in times of wealth and peace. And doesn't the, isn't the, the Christian community a great place for, for, both those, for us to be delivered from both those temptations? We need both. And often just getting our hands dirty, serving in the church, opens our eyes to our own folly. Maybe sometimes it's just another believer needs to lovingly point out our flawed perspective. Say, hey, you know what, the way you're talking about this, I don't think, I don't think it's right. And I don't think you're, you're even accurately assessing the way God's working. Sometimes we just need, need that, that loving correction in our life. We see that we've been slowly taking in the world's definition of success, and we need our, our definitions changed. We need our minds renewed. So the catalyst number one for change of perspective is considering others. We get out of our blinders of just looking at ourselves and just comparing what we have to, to the world, and we, and we start caring about the concerns of others. But second, notice the second catalyst for change is the, cor- is the place of corporate worship. In verse 16, he says, When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless. So he's mired just by self-introspection. Can't figure it out. He can't understand it. It just seems hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Everything seems hopeless until he gathers with the people of God. But what happens in God's sanctuary? Worship. Worship happens. And even Asaph here, he's a worship leader himself, despairs until he comes back to corporate worship. Worship turns our eyes from the cares of the world, the earthly concerns that so often crowd out God's reality. Think about the things we're reminded of when we go to worship. In worship, we're reminded of God's great work in creation, like we're reminded about some of the songs this morning. We're reminded of his handiwork down from the smallest atomic quark to the biggest heavenly bodies. 
we're, we're awed and amazed and reminded that of, of His work and creativity behind that. We're reminded of God's deliverance of His people from Egypt, from the power of, of Pharaoh. I'm sure Asaph was reminded often of the incredible slowness to anger in dealing with an obstinate people that always seem to fall back to sin, but God graciously leads them along to, to paths of repentance. We're reminded of God's loving presence in our own life. The Hebrew word associated with worship is often tied with this idea of grateful submission. Literally, it's like the act of bowing down. At worship, humility is required. But as we lower ourselves before our God and King in worship, it tends to correct the prideful, self-focused view that we saw in the beginning of the chapter that we all tend to take on at times of time, right? The catalyst to looking to others and to looking to God in worship then brings some answers. So these things spark change, and they bring some answers to the psalmist. First, he says, I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. You see, the answer to the seeming disparity between the lives of God's people and the lives of the people of the world is to understand their final destiny. Some English translations just simply profound it call it their end. What is the end of those who reject their creator? It's impossible for us to read the tea leaves of providence without considering the end destination. Because we look at the immediate circumstances and we just see the small, tiny snapshot. If you, if you ever scroll through a movie and you see one little, one little snapshot, one little screenshot within the whole thing, you, you don't know what's going on. So we see one tiny snapshot, one freeze frame in a much bigger panorama. We must consider our end. Death looms over all of us. What hope is there beyond the grave? Beyond what the Old Testament calls the power of Sheol. Wealth and ease are set in their right perspective in this light of eternity. Because even the present joys, even the greatest joys are empty and ultimately meaningless unless they're part of a bigger story. A narrative needs a clear and defined end goal to have any meaning. Theologian James Anderson points this out when we ask the age-old question, what is the meaning of life? And he points out we want to know whether our lives have purpose, whether they're directed towards some goal or end. He says a refrigerator has a fundamental purpose, to keep things cold. Do I have a fundamental purpose? Am I for something? We want to know whether our lives have significance, whether they count for something that's part of a greater whole. And as Asaph enters corporate worship, he remembers he needs to zoom out and look at the larger picture. Once death enters the equation, the way of the wicked looks terrifyingly precarious. They're standing on this knife's edge. It's terrifyingly precarious in the light of the reality of death. The psalmist says, Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. Have you ever been hiking like on wet rocks or something? You know how... It's precarious. Like you can go at any moment, or like on black ice. It's it's not a place of surety and, and of strength. He says, How suddenly they come become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors. Death can come at any moment. Everything seems fine, everything seems happy, everything looks happy and sunny, and then something simple can cut it short. 
The seeming ease of life can be cut short with one wrong turn of the steering wheel, one medical event, one bad diagnosis. Even furthermore, their own legacy is brought to nothing. Whatever wealth is gained will be quickly squandered. The Psalm 49 is really a companion psalm to this one. Uh, uh, if you want to take a look at it l- later tonight, it's, it follows this exact same theme. And there the psalmist says, when he dies, speaking of the wicked, he will take nothing at all. His wealth will not follow him. But perhaps what's most terrifying here is there's no mention of God's presence or nearness after death for the wicked. The grave stands before them with no prospect of a glad afterlife, just a terrifying expectation of judgment. But as he considers the end, he realizes the end for the follower of God has a much different end. He says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me up in glory. The end for the Christian is glory. Now, this is one of the clearest texts in the whole Old Testament on the afterlife for the people of God. It's a place of honor that awaits the faithful. The grave is often a place to be feared in the Psalms. David is is often saying, Lord, don't let me go down to Sheol. It's something to be delivered from. But Psalm 49 declares, God will redeem me from the power of Sheol, for he will take me. God will redeem me from the power of Sheol. The grave waits for all of us, but God takes the power of it away for the believer. So when we're taken away from our narrow perspective on worldly success, we confront the reality of death and the comfort offered to the believer. But this is really important. It's not just that heavenly bliss awaits us. It's not just that right here and now is a veil of tears and we, we only wait for blessing to come. You see, the reality of heaven comes in and breaks in and untwists our perspective here and now. Our warped view is corrected, and we can even see through days of sorrow through to the eternal reality of heaven, and that breaks through to how we live our life and how we understand God here and now. In light of the end of the Christian, Asaph understands two great realities, two great transforming truths that come clearly into the picture. The first is the gift of God Himself. He cries out, Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. God Himself is His ultimate desire. God Himself is His most precious thing. Greater than any possible possession on earth. The language here is of comparison. Nothing compares to God Himself. Do you remember that initially the singer of the psalm was comparing his life with that of others, his life with all the blessing he saw around. Now he's comparing things to God, and the comparison is favorable to God. His perspective has been corrected in light of eternity. Health and wealth and ease and fame all pale in comparison. God Himself is the summum bonum, the highest good. As Augustine so helpfully prayed, he said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Here the psalmist finds his ultimate rest in God. He finds his highest satisfaction in the triune God. How, how, what an amazing reversal from that first section to now. I mean, if we would have stopped halfway through the psalm, 
imagine, imagine the different takeaway. What amazing reversal. But I do want a quick, uh, quick clarification on this. Because this is not to say we don't take joy in physical things that God himself promises, both now and eternally. We're not just, it's not just an ascetic life where we only look to spiritual blessings to come. That's not actually, actually what he's saying. Many of the visions of heaven are of ease and joy, of wealth, of wealth and uh, abundance for God's people. One of the great joys in Revelation 21 is the curse is lifted, the curse from sin. But what's central is that God and the Lamb are there. That's what's central, and everything else flows out of that. Uh, Randy Alcorn has a, hev- a good little book on heaven, and he points out that we ought to desire long for the good thing God promises, both now and to come. But we see, and we see these good gifts of children and jobs and good food and nature's beauty on a sunny day. And we see these as good gifts from the Father. But we see them as secondary joys, as derivative from their ultimate source. He gives the example of, of the gift and the giver. So if we're, if we're sick and a friend comes over and uh, brings us a, a meal, our primary joy is in that friendship. We're, we're so glad to be loved and comforted in that way. But there's a real tangible joy in the food. There's a real tangible joy, but it's secondary. It's derivative. It points to the giver. So what the psalm is not saying is that we take no joy in the physical realm. Paul says it's God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. But we do not set our hope on these things. We do not rest in these things. These things are ultimate. They are secondary. We see them only in relationship to the giver himself. So as Asaph considers eternal heavenly realities, he first sees the gift of God himself. But secondly, notice he's also comforted by the nearness of God. So notice how eternal realities of heaven break into the here and now. He says, yet I'm always with you. You hold my right hand. He sees it was God who led him into the sanctuary. He sees God's presence. He sees his leading. He sees it as God who is present, leading him even during this period of doubt and envy. He goes on to say in verse 28, But as for me, God's presence is my good. That's, that's huge, isn't there? He started out the psalm, God is good to Israel, and then he doubts it. And he comes back and says, God's presence is my good. His whole definition of goodness has been redefined in the light of eternity that God's presence is the essence of what is good. And it's something he has even here and now and will have in greater measure when when God delivers him from the power of Sheol. He has made the Lord his refuge. when, When his perspective is corrected, his very definition of goodness has been changed. He now sees God's work in his life. So maybe you're here this, this morning and it's been a trying year. Maybe God's nearness and his gentle leading in your life just seems cloudy and vague. Often the concerns of the world seem to be crowding our thoughts, just like Asaph in the beginning. Don Carson, who's a theologian, scholar, writes, wrote a real helpful uh, book on his dad, who was just a, a faithful Baptist uh, uh, pastor in Canada. And he wrote this passage that always haunts me because he, he went through his dad's memoirs, and he talked about his dad praying, and he said it was like the heavens were closed to him. 
because he was laboring faithfully and saw very little, very little fruit, very little conversions. And here's a faithful man. And he said, my prayers felt like heaven was close to me. It felt cloudy and vague. He couldn't see how God's, God's nearness and, and uh, leading w- was working in his life and in his ministry. Now, later on, they actually saw something of a revival in that era, and all those years of labor were not for nothing. In the bigger panorama, God was using them. But at times, we, we come with those, those clouds of doubt and darkness. And we come to Psalms like this, and we need it to be a, an encouragement and a corrective. See, even in the light of all the psalmist's worst thoughts and doubts, God was with him. That should encourage us. Think about all the wicked things and horrible things he said in the beginning of this chapter. The wicked even mock God in verse 11, challenging whether God's even aware of their evil deeds. These are the kind of things that Asaph is thinking as he's going through this period of doubt and distress. But even in the midst of all that, all that doubt and worry, Asaph says, you hold my right hand. It's like the picture of of a dad holding a little kid's hand across the street. It's like, I'm going to take you with you. I'm going to take you with me through the dangerous peril. God was there. You guide me with your counsel. God was still there guiding us, and he's still there guiding us through his word. But often his presence is manifested in the corporate life of his people. As we serve and worship, we're reminded again and again of God's goodness. And it's not always flashy. You know, sometimes we meet in a gym. Sometimes it's... You know, things are awkward or it's not always flashy, but God's there. But God's there and his presence is there and that's what's good. But as we leave today, I love the way the psalmist finishes. He's reminded of God's nearness, but he finishes with this commitment to declaration and proclamation. He says, I've made the Lord my refuge so I can tell about all you do. See, when we see the reality of God as a lavish giver to his people, as a God who has blessings stored up in heaven for those who follow him, as, as well as a nearness and leading now, we respond in proclamation of who he is. We realize he is not stingy. God is not allowing others to flourish and his people to languish. But indeed, he's given us his ultimate gift. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him grant us everything? God will grant us everything. So as we're living on this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ, we see that God has given the most precious thing of all, his son. And this ought to leave us with a passion for declaring his mighty acts of salvation and redemption. We first proclaim these truths to ourselves. Because often we're, like Asaph, often we're floundering under doubt and denial or under our, our, our attention is being driven away by things, by, by, and by things that we want to make ultimate when they should be secondary. We need to constantly preach this to ourselves to bring our wandering hearts back to Him. But then as we do experience this, we then want to share the good news of Christ's work to a world who needs God who needs their ultimate good, who needs the end to which they were created. We were created, our chief end, as the the confession says, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So 
That's what we proclaim both to ourselves, we need to remind ourselves, and we proclaim to a world that need that that doesn't have that as their ultimate end. So let's close in prayer. Father, there are many things I I know that uh, this psalm awakens in us that we know we need to turn away from um, things that we've made ultimate when they need to be seen as secondary, things that we've maybe exaggerated how much they would, they would fix our present uh, situations when, it, when we should be so thankful for your present leading and guiding, your sustaining and all the good gifts you have given us. We're so thankful that we've been able to meet even during this difficult year and have this Christian community here to remind us of your goodness, to remind us of your work and redemption throughout history. We ask that you would change our twisted perspective, constantly renew our minds so that we would come, that we would esteem uh, you most, that we would uh, live with this heavenly perspective, that we would have an unshakable uh, faith and trust that you have, that you have good planned for us, that you will bless those who follow you, who trust you, and have, re- have been redeemed purely by your grace. And give us a, a comfort uh, for the times when we do uh, languish, when we do have, have times of doubt and worry and, and self-introspection. We ask that you would come in and open our eyes, use other believers to come into our life and point us back to you, back to, back to the truth so that we wouldn't believe the lies. We ask that you do these things in Jesus' name. Amen.